Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, folks, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I imagine some of you are listening to this on Memorial Day. Have a nice day off. Don't drive your car into a wall. Don't drink and drive. Go easy on the meat. I think that's generally a, a good uh, metaphor, but also good practical advice in a literal sense. Go easy on the meat. Hey, unless you like it hard. You know what I'm saying? Then, then push it. But uh, I, generally, if you go hard on the meat, it doesn't end well for anybody involved. Certainly not the meat. I, you know what? Sometimes you shouldn't just you shouldn't chase those metaphors. Sometimes there's no reason for it. Uh, today on the show, Chris Gethard from his uh, wonderful talk show. Uh, the season finale of the Chris Gethard show is this Wednesday on Fusion. Also check out Chris's podcast on Earwolf. It's called uh, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. Chris is also a very funny uh, comedian. And also today on the show, I'm going to talk a, a good do a little little talk with uh, Quincy Jones. The comic, um, uh, many of you know him. For, he did a, a fairly famous uh, Ellen appearance and and told the world that he had this horrible cancer and and he wanted you know, some of his last wishes were to do an HBO special and to do this show. Had a nice little chat with him. Pow! Look out! Just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop available at WTFpod.com. But uh, yeah, like I did three sets last night at the comedy store. Then I went to, uh, then I decided like I've gotten into this late night eating pattern, which is uh, classic old comedy behavior. When, when you're out there doing the work in the clubs, you're all jacked up and there's nothing better to do at 1130 at night than eat a, a full meal. Full meal is good. Uh, Judd and I have been doing that. Last night uh, we went to uh, Cantor's which was better than the, the other night where we went to this place, Craig's, and uh, we both had a similar experience where um, it was some sort of very definitive bottom. Like I, we had we had hit bottom. The day after I went to eat a couple, what was it, a few days ago, I thought I was going to die in my sleep. I'd eaten that much. I felt sweaty. It was a bad idea. It was 11.30 at night. There was meatballs, mac and cheese involved. Um there was chipino involved. There was chocolate bread pudding and ice cream involved. And I, I literally thought that I might not wake up. Was it worth it? And I got to be honest with you, the chocolate bread pudding at Craig's was worth it. But last night it was Cantor's, lox eggs and onions, you know, straight up Jew food, got home and then uh, could not sleep. I sat through the entire movie, The Intern 
from one o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the morning because between us and those of you who've known me a while, I love Anne Hathaway and I love Robert De Niro. And as bad as that movie may have been, I do think that people need to start realizing that De Niro is actually doing some of the best fucking acting of his entire career. That was a very nuanced, very sweet, very controlled, very emotionally grounded and deep performance. And uh, it was a pleasure to watch both of them work within the confines of a fairly sappy movie. That's all I'm saying today. Also, go to WTFpod.com slash tour to see where I'm coming. All right? Because I got dates in July. I, I'm doing things. I'm, I'm out there, you know, trying to, to make the shit happen. Do you want me to read them to you? I can do it for you. I, I'm going to be doing the Trippany House for the next few Tuesdays, May 31, June 7, June 14th, June 21, June 28. I'll be at Spokane Comedy Club in Spokane, Washington, July 7th, 8th, and uh, 9th. I will be at Wise Guys in Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, July 14, 15, and 16. I'll be at the Comedy Attic in Bloomington, Indiana, July 28th, 29th, and 30th. I'll be at Stand Up Live in Phoenix, Arizona, August 18th, 19th, and 20th. I'll be at the Comedy Club in Rochester, New York, September 9th and September 10th. And that's all that's up there for right now. You dig? Good. Yeah, okay. Another, but along with my tour dates, I should promote my TV show on Marin. On Marin? No, IFC. Marin on IFC, Wednesdays, 9 o'clock. We're at a rehab. We're in the world, and it's going to get weird. Uh, this Wednesday, the amazing Sally Struthers uh, is in the show with me, acting with me, and it's, uh, it's, it's good. I'm, I'm very proud of this season, and, uh, and this is um, some, uh, some dark but beautiful stuff. All right? All right, there. I've promoted myself. Uh, my first guest here, Quincy Jones, has been out in the world uh, doing stand-up for a bit, but uh, been very public about his battle with cancer. He's going to be on HBO this Thursday in his special, Quincy Jones, Burning the Light. It airs uh, Thursday, June 2nd. That's this Thursday at 10 p.m., and this is me and Quincy Jones. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts quincy jones yeah what was your mother thinking that's a lot of expectation that's a lot of pressure just the name itself i mean that's a stage name oh it is yeah oh you chose that yeah, well it was chosen for me really yeah you know there's another one I i've heard of him <laughs> <laughs> thriller, Fresh Prince, something like that. Uh -huh. But 
It's been a while since you did something like yeah, that. Oh, okay. No. So you, figured, you thought the world needs another Quincy Jones. I figured why not. <laughs> you really you chose it? How'd that happen? I mean, I didn't choose it so much as I I was terrified that an ex-girlfriend of mine heard I was going to do comedy, and she said she was going to come boo me if she saw me. So I went up to the open mic yeah. and signed up as Q, yeah. and the guy's like, who's Q? I'm like, that's me. He's like, we don't do one letter or one name. We need a full name. So what is it? Quentin? Quincy? I was like, Quincy. Yeah. Quincy's like, what's last name? Jones? Uh-huh. I was like, Jones. Yeah. He's like, Quincy Jones? Like the producer? I was like, yeah, yeah, man. It happens all the time. And then it just <laughs> and went from stuck. there. Yeah. And then years later, I ran into that ex. Yeah. And I was like, you know I go by the name Quincy Jones because of you. And she's like- Dude, I, I was there that night. I saw you perform. You were funny. Yeah. I was like, you said you were going to boo me. Uh-huh. She's like, we, we were breaking up. I was upset. I'm not going to really boo you. I don't have the courage to do what uh, you do. I was like, well, now I got a whole facade. I get checks in this name because of you. Thank you. <laughs> she did it. <laughs> What's your real name? Kwame Wallen. Kwame Wallen? Yeah. Kwame. Yeah. How do you spell that? Q-U-A-M-I. Really? Mm-hmm. What kind of name is that? Swahili. Really? Means keeper of the Sabbath. In uh, oh, really? And that, and that was your mom's decision? That was my mom's decision, yeah. Where'd you grow up? Seattle, Washington. How old are you? 32. So in, in, what what kind of family did you grow up in? What was your what was your uh, mom and dad doing? I mean, pops left early. Mom's held like it left? down. Like left? Like just bounced. Oh, really? And then uh, mom's held it down. And uh, that was that. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, got a, I got a little brother. I got an older sister. I got a niece and nephew. That's my immediate family right there. And what was the what was the deal growing up? When did you start getting involved with uh, wanting to do comedy? I mean, I was always funny. I used because I grew up poor. Yeah, you know, so like I had jokes like when rich kids would try and clown on the other poor kids, and they try and clown on me. I'm like, nah, man, uh-huh. you're not gonna you're not gonna do that, man. Like, right. And so I used to always have jokes ready, fire back on. It used to be a thing. Like everyone, yeah. like, oh, could you get the best of me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you know, uh, I, so I was always funny. For the most part, and then I started doing uh, comedy like years later, like I was 22. What were you doing around town before that? Did you work? I was hustling. Yeah, like what? Drugs. Everything. Really? I sold everything except heroin and ecstasy. Because when I was hustling, ecstasy became manslaughter charges. This is now early 02. Early. Really? So what are you selling? Weed? Weed, <clears throat> coke, shrooms. Really? Pills, yeah. That was the That was the job. That was, I mean, I was working at Starbucks too. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I was, I had a day job, you know. And so back then, it was like, well, that's Starbucks land. That's where it started. Yeah, you weren't working at the original one down in Pike's Market, were you? No, I worked at every other one. I worked at the one in Seventh and Pike. I worked at the one in U District. One in, all over. They take care of you, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, like I, I thought you that put they up were with a lot of shit for those benefits, man. Do you, <laughs> you put up with a lot? Of, you put up with a lot of shit. <laughs> A lot of people coming back saying this isn't my latte. Oh man! So how'd you get involved with that? I mean, again, I grew. Was up there poor. a dude? It wasn't a dude, but I grew up poor, and I was like, I'm tired of getting clowned for being not having. Because I grew up in the height of black consumerism. So this is when Tommy Hilfiger, Helly Hansen, Nautica, Fubu, right, first down jackets, everything was just all getting purchased by black people, right. And I didn't have any of that, right. Like I went to, j- I've been to jail, been locked up. Wow, did 13 months actually. And then in, inside, you got clean, you found some God, you got, did what you do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> I mean, I believe in it. Yeah. I believe because I made a vow to God. I said, God, you get me out of this joint. Yeah. I'll never sell drugs again. 
Yeah. Guy's like, you sure? I was like, I promise you, you get me out of here. I'll never touch it. I was like, all right. So I got out. I haven't sold drugs since uh, November 25th, 2007. So when you get out, what's the plan? What's the life change? The life change was for me, like, I remember like some of the OGs in the joint had been like, yo, Bird, when you get out, what you going to do? I was like, I don't know. I'll figure out when I get out there. Yeah. Like, what? They're like, nah, if you don't have a plan, you'll end up back here sooner than later. So I was like, okay. All right, so I thought, so I, I got a job, you know? My, my I knew some people who worked at Foot Locker. Yeah. I got a job. Yeah. So when I when I got out, I got out the day before Thanksgiving of 2007. Yeah. Ate some food 2007. Yeah. And then started a job the day after Thanksgiving. Selling shoes. Selling shoes. Was it, uh, so okay? Did you find that you were like tempted or you were pretty much, you, you, you got scared? I mean, it was, the, it was, a to be honest, I think you get it more than anybody else. It's the politics of the bullshit oh, sometimes. Dude, you're just know. like, like you have a show and you, to get your show on the air, you had yeah. to go through a lot of shit. Yeah, I, I mean, I get like, you know, like having people above you that you don't have respect for is a difficult situation no matter what level it occurs at. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I don't even need to say anything else. Good night, guys. Listen, this has been WTF. <laughs> yeah, I, well, that's one of the reasons we do what we do. And I imagine it's one of the reasons why, you know, you know selling drugs and at least having that control over your own life. You know, it's appealing. There's certain people like, yeah, it's it's criminal, but it also speaks to the idea. It's like, I don't want to do bullshit. I don't want to do bullshit for people. So you're at Foot Locker. When do you do your first, uh, you know, stand-up shit? I mean, okay. I first did stand-up 21 because I was scared that I might die in, in the joint. So I did it to get it out of my way. I remember meeting uh, Hari Kondabalu after that open mic. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he was up there at the time. And he was like, yo, you're really funny. How long have you been doing? I was yeah. like, this is my first time. He's like, oh, you're going to be good. So you're going out. Now, I, I'm I'm taking it then that in Seattle, just given you know the life you were living, there was no you know black comedy club. No. Nah, not, yeah. not that I knew. No, right. Tacoma. No, there was no black Nothing. comedy club right. at the time. Yeah. Right. So you're just going in with all the hipster kids. Mm -hmm. It's 2000 and what? This is 2006. So, so like, you know, comedy's already changed. You got all the little uh, smarty pants guys. Yeah. You know, there's still some old timers around doing it the old way, but there's a whole influx of young people. Yeah, that was a boom. Right, right. Trying shit out. Right. So, like, who was coming around? Who were you watching? Who were you learning from? Uh, nobody. Mm. I went in Good. and, like, I forged, <laughs> I forged my way through, like, I, mean, I remember when I first discovered Bill Hicks. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I remember, like, I, it was like, I remember. Someone turned you on to him? Someone must have. Yeah, I mean, I, I soaked up everything. Like, I was looking at, every, I, I'd ask every headline, I'm like, yo, who to check out? Like, I wanted to learn. I wanted to be. Well, that's like, who were you watching? Like, who was uh, making an impression on you? Because if you, so you start, you do your first set at the underground, and then how long before you like, hanging out there all the time? Oh, shit, man. Because I, I did the first set, and I did the, did the time, did the year, and then came out and started doing it. Oh, like, so you did it right before you went into the joint? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, and then I ended up, uh, I ended up um, doing it again, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Okay, two thousand ten got serious. So when you come out, are you talking about jail? Nah, because I didn't want to scare white people. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. Yeah, so I was like a twenty five year old junior in college at that point. You know what I'm saying? So you like, got out and you went to college? Yeah, I got out, went to college. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I told you I wasn't going back. Though I, I learned my lesson. So you got the Foot Locker job and you got into school. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I started working at Starbucks again. Uh-huh. About September 08, I started college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went through a mid-20s breakdown. I freaked out. I went to went enrolled in school. Went to fucking Central Washington. That's a good freak out. Which so is, you, it was you freaked worst. out and you went enrolled in school. You didn't freak out and fuck everything up again. Nah, and I, w- I couldn't do that. Yeah. I couldn't do that. So you went enrolled where, where at? Central Washington. Yeah. And how was that for you? That was the worst decision I've ever made in my life. <laughs> you're talking to you're talking to a black kid from Seattle, yeah. from the hood, yeah. going out to fucking rural ass Ellensburg, Washington, an hour and a half away. Uh-huh. I I ended up getting more trouble out there. Why? Cause what? Cause, what you like what you tell me you're the only black guy out there? I mean, the only black guy that wasn't an athlete. I didn't fit in out there. Right. Like that's the thing. Like it was, it was weird. It was real weird. Yeah. Because there wasn't that many black people, so you're on either the football team, baseball team, basketball team. And if you're not, you're like, what's that black guy exactly. doing? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Even the black people are like, what's that black guy doing? <laughs> he doesn't have to be here. And you know, and it's college, so it's like, oh, so like girls are you know jersey chasing, right? Yeah. But I'm still getting laid, right? Yeah. Even yeah. though I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a jersey, so yeah. that made the athletes mad at me. Black and really? white, because they're like, you shouldn't be getting laid. Yeah, you don't play football. Why are you getting laid? This is our time to shine. Uh-huh. I'm like, man, personality, baby. Yeah, yeah. And how long did you last out there? I, I did. I finished that. You got a degree? Yeah, I got it. In what? Philosophy and sociology. That's good. Not bad. It's good for comedy. Uh, we are modern day philosophers. <laughs> sure. So, all right. So then you go back, and now you're doing it. You you lock in. And you're watching stand ups with yeah. a critical eye. With a, with a hungry eye, not even critical. I didn't have an opinion of because the only comedy I'd seen before yeah. was Chris Rock's Bigger and Blacker. That's a good no one. No Sex in a Champagne Room bit and then the niggas versus black people That's bit. That's the best bit in the world. It is. Yeah. It is. And so I felt like, I was like, I got thoughts like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I, I could do this. Yeah. I remember that was that. Yeah. I remember discovering Bill Burr. Yeah, he's great. I remember that. I mean, like my, my, my favorites now. I, lo- I love comedy. I'm a student of the game. Yeah. So when you first starting out, you is it just the underground or it laughs it opened or no? Yeah, last I didn't actually worked at laughs. Oh yeah, for a little bit. Do I work in the door? No, just uh, doing serving. Oh yeah, yeah, doing serving, bring out the little you know food. And... So you're seeing everybody. So you're getting to meet the people. Yeah, I'm getting to meet the people. And you're seeing how the game works. Yeah, you're seeing these headliners come in. They're they're you know either bitchy or not bitchy. And when you start learning about the life from these guys who are coming in for a week at a time, you start to get a sense of of you know how it works. I mean, I met Hannibal. Yeah, I met Hannibal there. And was like, he was cool. Yeah. He, he's a quiet, deep dude. He's a chill dude. Very chill. Very. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had him in here before. Yeah. So you're sort of like, you all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, I'm cool. <laughs> I'm just yeah. soaking in this garage. That's right. right. That's yeah, right. Books. That's crazy. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. but it's like, it's it's just, uh, I don't know, man. Like, it's I watched funny, everyone. with him, he's evolved too. Like, you know, the Hannibal you probably saw early on before he you know became bigger. Like now he put on big show. Remember, like he was sort of like a kind of headbergy in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not anymore, man. That first He's, album was a classic. Oh yeah, that first album and Mulaney's the top part. Is yeah, Mulaney's first fast. It's a it's a cla- these are classic albums for you. Yeah, because I mean, well, it's you your generation. The, yeah, I mean, yeah. which I looked at your generation and was like, damn, I'm glad. you go back online and you could see you, uh, uh, Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. First late night where he's like what, running around oh, yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. being crazy. You're sure. like, what? What the fuck? Yeah. When I was in Conan, I, <laughs> I was like, 
I stayed in the pocket. This guy's doing panel. Oh, yeah. He's, You're he's crawling up around on, on his knees on sure. the desk. I'm like, yo, the 70s were wild. Oh, they were definitely wild, and he was sort of a unique talent, you know, that, that you know, they're, they're, not everybody could do that and get away with it. Right, that, right. that was his zone, you know what I mean? Everybody finds their own zone. So uh, so you just did Conan for the first time recently? Yeah, I did it uh, last month, April did you do it, do it, was, Just stand up or did you sit down? Stand up. Just stand up. So you got out there, you got your spot? Yeah, got that, man. Yeah, how'd that feel? Was that the first big TV shot? Ellen was my first big TV shot. Yeah, well, that, that puts you on the map. Yeah, that definitely did. Yeah, the dying guy. Yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> the dying comedian. They, my mom called me over there. was like, do you not telling me something? I'm like, nah, man. They, mar- you know how Hollywood is, mom. They're marketing it a certain way. <laughs> right. It's totally different than what it's marketed as. <laughs> Well, that I mean, well, at least you had the jokes to you know to do the Conan. I mean, I was ready. Mm-hmm. Like, like I don't want anyone to think that like this is like this is like Make a Wish, and I had writers or something like that. Like, I was ready for this. <laughs> you know, I'd worked hard to get here. I had a bunch of material. So when we trimmed the fat off the special, it was gonna be it was like okay, yeah, this guy's ready. Yeah. So what? When did that? So you would were you headlining on the road? What were you doing? Nah, man, I have no credit. I, I didn't have any credits. So you had about what, 40 minutes? No, I had an hour and a half. Yeah? Like full. I did My first headline club was Ontario Improv. Uh-huh. I always have love for that club. That was when first, was that? That was, uh, let's see, the 21st of April. Okay. Yeah, my mom's birthday. So, but basically, sadly, your big break was announcing that you had cancer. Yeah. And I didn't see the Ellen episode. Did you do stand-up? No. She wouldn't do that. Uh-huh. What do you mean? I don't think she'd bring stand-up on. She was a stand-up, you know? Well, yeah, I know, but so was David Letterman, so it was... <laughs> right, right, but that's late night, you know? This is daytime. I don't uh-huh. really think... How did you get that gig? I mean, the, the Kickstarter video went viral, and my cousin had written in... So you did a Kickstarter for money for cancer? Well, no, we did we did a GoFundMe to pay for my hospital bills. Yeah. That got a lot of love. That was in September. I, I did 45 days in the hospital last year. Well, what, let's go back then. So you, now you're, you're kicking around. You, you don't have cancer. You moved down here, I guess. Is that what happened? First time on the road, we went to Sacramento. Uh-huh. Sacramento Punchline. Uh-huh. That was my first time on the road. That's a big room. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is it. I went back to fucking making coffee drinks, dog. <laughs> Where at? Uh, at um, La Pan Quotidian, mm-hmm. up in there in Melrose. Mm-hmm. Doing that, and I was just like, oh, I thought this was yeah, yeah. I thought that was my show. Yeah. Again, another moment where I'm like, this is You're it. You're going to work. You're going to work. Right. So, But I just kept grinding. Kept grinding. Doing alt rooms? Doing alt, Yeah, doing alt rooms because I didn't like the way the clubs treated comics. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So I was like, fuck them. I'm not going to the clubs. Yeah. And I'd rather get time in these alt rooms, yeah. get these jokes up, so when I go to the clubs, I knock it out the park. So you're just living a comic's life, and you're getting some success, and you're, you're grinding away. So when do you feel sick? I feel sick. I went home. I went home November of 2014 to Seattle. Yeah, I went, home. Uh, I went there and I got I got sick and I came back and my belly had been filling up with fluid. Yeah. And my girlfriend at the time, uh, she took me to the hospital and I was terrified of hospitals. Um, and so she took me. She held me down there. And uh, December 30th, 2014, they said, "Hey, you got ascites, and that usually comes from kidney failure or cirrhosis of the liver." <sighs> I was like, "Do I have those things?" They're like, "No." I'm like, what do I do? They're like, well, you don't have health insurance, so we're not. We can't do anything here, but you should get your belly drained sometime. Get a paracentesis tap. I was like, okay, sounds good. So wait, January 2015, 
that starts the process of the next six months getting my belly drained once or twice a month getting four to six and a half liters of fluid without a diagnosis without a diagnosis why no diagnosis because they took them six months to do the biopsy we didn't do a biopsy in my stomach till june which is because of health coverage no i think it was just because they couldn't figure it out and it was at la county uh-huh they were like, well, well, they're like, this normally comes from this. He's too young to have anything else. Oh, so they couldn't track it. So they couldn't track it. Right. So they did a biopsy, and they fucked me up that way. Uh-huh. They did a biopsy. They said, we're going to take a sample of your stomach line and test it. Uh-huh. They went in. They took out my appendix. They took out a wall of tissue. Uh-huh. And I was just like, I was fucked up. Uh-huh. I went on the road later on that week. I got I got it Monday the 15th. Wednesday, I got out of the hospital. Saturday, I go on the road. I booked a tour where I was going to make at least $1,000 for, for the summer. Uh-huh. I went to Boston. I got caught the red eye Saturday night, Sunday. Monday, I was in the ER there. They drained my stomach there. It's messed up. What, you, it just filled up on you? and you're, just filled uh, up on me. Oh. So I, uh, so then I leave there. Uh, I go to New York, catch a mega bus down to New York. I'm excited. New York, I'll hit up some shows. I go pass out on the, on the train. They take me to the, I pass out in the subway to, to Brooklyn. They take me to Interfaith in Brooklyn. Uh, I, I stay there for a week. I force myself out. I go back down to to, uh, to where I'm staying in New York. I go to Jersey. My cousin's there. Uh, I pass out there in the driveway. He takes me to a hospital in Jersey, in Morristown. I stay there for a week, July 3rd, 5.50 in the morning. They're like, hey, we got the results back from your biopsy in June. It's cancer. It's peritoneal mesothelioma. So I'm sitting there like, well, this is cool. Peritoneal mesothelioma. That what's that mesothelioma of the stomach? Yeah, of the stomach. Right. And usually, it's a lung thing, right? Yeah, that's a common one. There's yeah. a heart one. That's the most rare. And uh-huh. then there's the there's the stomach. That's mine in the middle. Now, is this like? Uh, is there a cause? Normally, it's related to asbestos, asbestos exposure in the lungs, right? right? But not you. Not me. Just a fluke. Just just a fluke. Shitty luck. And exactly. And yeah. it's like my I didn't li- I didn't work in construction or on ma- right. mechanic shops. My my old man wasn't there, so we don't I, we don't know how I got. It. I got right. a lawyer on it that he's investigating all my addresses and uh-huh. stuff. But um, but besides that, it was uh, uh, so we find that I, I'm like this is good. This is a step in the right direction uh-huh. because I didn't know what it was up until that point. Uh-huh. So now we know it's cancer. They say, you got to go home. I come back to LA. I start fighting the cancer. They say, it's going to be eight weeks to see an oncologist. I said, you can't tell me I have cancer and tell me to chill for eight weeks. So then I, I leave. Uh, I get myself admitted into the ER, and I stayed there for 45 days. I got out. I did two open mics because I'm a real comic, and I had jokes about being in a hospital. I didn't feel right. I went to another hospital up in Burbank, and that's where I found out I had a heart attack. I had a heart attack. I had a blood clot around like the size of a quarter at the bottom aorta of my heart. And so at that point, I broke down. I lost it. I told my girl at the time. You like, didn't feel the heart attack? When he passed out, that's what it was. Well, I, we don't know why, but it was probably stress. Yeah. You can get one from stress. We can have heart attacks all the time. We don't even know. Sure. But, you know, so I was just like, I, this is it. I can't take it. I yeah. can't do it. I was like, I'm never going to get out this hospital. I'll never do comedy again. Uh, and, and that was that. Well, I eventually get out the hospital. I start doing chemo. And that's when, you know, they, they, they did a GoFundMe to help me pay some of the bills. That yeah. helped out a lot. Um, and then I've been doing chemo. And then they did a Kickstarter at the top half of this year, yeah. January, February. For? Uh, for for the, to make a special. Yeah. Because they asked me what I wanted to do. In case Who I did? Died. Uh, my friend, the Blaines. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they're, they're a production company. Uh-huh. And... Uh, 
They said, what do you want to do for your dad? I was like, well, I'm already living my dreams. I guess I want to make a special. Yeah. I don't want to do an album. You know, yeah. I want to do a special. Right. So I did a special. I mean, so- uh, Where'd you shoot it? Terragram Ballroom. Right well, that's by nice. The, yeah, right by the Monty Bar. I heard that's nice. It's a great music venue. It's going to go on HBO. June 2nd, 10 p.m. That's exciting, man. Yeah. And what'd you do? How, how long did you do? What'd you end up with? I was 56, black to black. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I ended up doing an hour 20 each show. So you had you had choices. Yeah, I got choices. And you tightened it up. Yeah. I mean, I had two weeks to make that hour. Mm-hmm. So when you watch it, know that that was put together in two weeks. But you had the material. Yeah, I had the material. You just had it to was put a, it together. But I'm more of a a, a riffer. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm more, you know, I'm yeah. more of that. Like, I could sure. do... All day, like riffing. Right, know. right. But so did you do a lot of that? or? You... No, I had to tighten up because I had to send the jokes to HBO. Yeah. So I had to show them. I had to do the hour of the jokes that I wanted on there, send it to HBO, have their legal department look at it. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, these are good to go. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, you look uh, you look pretty healthy. I mean, besides the cancer, I am healthy. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's the real part. What's the prognosis, man? I mean, they don't update your prognosis when they say you got a year to live. You live longer than a year. They're not like, let's review this. They're like, no. They're like, that's it. You just live longer. Keep doing whatever you're doing. Uh huh. But there, there, there's no getting rid of it. No, nah, there's no, there's no. Well, as of right now, there's no cure. You know, right. it's just chemo. All the cancer's doing is control. All the chemo's doing is controlling it right now. Uh huh. You know. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Is there a chance that the, that it goes away? No. No, there's no uh, chance. I mean, there's a surgery that you could do. Uh-huh. It's called HIPEC. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to, to do. Um, and that's where, like, they go inside, they, they, they get rid of all the, the cancer cells. Yeah. And then they fill it up with heated chemotherapy, yeah. jostle it around, stitch you back up. Yeah. It's like a 12 to 17-hour surgery. Yeah. But there's a chance that it may not come back. Come back? Oh, right. I get you. Yeah. But there's a chance it might. As well, so it's like, do you really want to do a twelve to seventeen hour surgery for a maybe a fifty fifty? Well, yeah, but I mean, but like, where does it leave you after the surgery? I mean, how compromised are you? If I mean, you you're, you're out for you're out for a month because you're you're in the hospital six seven days afterwards because they they gut you. They go from your sternum down to your groin, hip to hip. Yeah, pull it back. Yeah, and then just uh, carterize yeah. almost. They just burn the shit out. Yeah, pretty much. And then they close you back up. Jo- but they put chemotherapy and jostle everything around, then close you back up. Okay, but the, but the, what I'm asking is that after you get that surgery, do you, can you eat and digest food properly and like live your life? I mean, it seems like even if it's just 50-50, if you can pull the bread together to do it, what do you got to lose if a month versus maybe the rest of your life being longer? I mean, it still is a process. Like, yeah, you know, the, you. The, the money... Let's say, let's say it's the money. It's still a aggressive surgery. Yeah. You know? So right. So they're that. telling you that. They're yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not me just making Yeah, It's an aggressive surgery. Right, right. I just met with the UCLA specialist on yeah. Friday. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like, okay. Yeah, they're like, dude, if there's another, let, let, let's hold off on this. Yeah. You know? Let's see what else we could try and think of. So now, you, how often do you go to chemo? I got it tomorrow. Was it once a week, twice a week? Every three weeks. Every three weeks? I did. After the special? I had to do chemo the day, the very next day. And what do you, 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 they hook you up and you sit there? Yeah, I sit there, you know, they plug, shoot it in the veins. You get sick? I still get, I get nauseous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not fun. Well, shit, man. Well, I, I, you know, I, I hope it works out on that level for you and I, and I hope you have a longer life than anticipated or, or, or diagnosed. You I seem. will. I will. I feel like you will. 
I feel like it, I feel like it's good. Yeah. You're gonna like the special. I think you'd really like. It. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. You really gonna watch it? Of course. Dope. Yeah, that's kind of dope. Mark Marion <laughs> says he's gonna watch my. Why wouldn't I watch it? I watch specials. Yeah, yeah. Yours is dope. That last one I thought I did a pretty good job on. You did really more, good. More later, I have pretty happy with that. Yeah, I I, uh, I was trying to be a a little more uh, a little more open and a little more. Uh, 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 I saw. I felt. I felt you put the charm. I felt like you turned it from zero to one. Sure. Yeah. I Maybe did. zero to two. You yeah. did it. I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Look yeah. at Mark trying to play ball That's now. Right. Exactly. Okay. It only took me twenty five years to play a little ball to, <laughs> to, to make my problems everybody's problems. Exactly. <laughs> Spread those problems around. That's right. Mark. They're not that unique. I got to assume everyone has them. Maybe it's just the way I'm putting them out there. There you go. <laughs> well, good talking to you, man. Thanks, man. a hell of a struggle that kid's in and uh, you can uh, watch his special on uh, HBO Burning the Light uh, that's Thursday this Thursday June 2nd at 10 p.m. and now we're going to talk to Chris Gethard and uh, he's a guy that you know I've known about on the periphery for a while uh, he's a guy that you know I, I wanted to have on the show but I did not know his show. I kind of knew him. I knew I have friends that uh, were big fans of his, and uh, and I knew he was a great guy. And I just uh, and I knew he was a funny guy, but I just didn't know his shit. So like, I got up to speed. I enjoyed it, and and we actually had one of the great talks in in my mind. I, I really enjoyed it. Dear friend of my friend, Tom Sharpling, and now I, I would consider Chris Gethard uh, a friend of mine because of the nature of our conversation and the way we, we're a couple of Jersey guys at heart, a couple of Jersey guys. Uh, again, Chris is uh, the finale of the Chris Gethard show is this Wednesday on Fusion. Also, you can check out Chris's podcast on Earwolf. It's called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. This is me and the uh, the very decent, funny, and deep Chris Gethard. What mics do you use for yours? These, right? Are you doing it at Earwolf? Where do you do I it? I do it at Earwolf, New York. They just opened a studio there. Yeah. So I just. Do you I, always talk so low when you're doing your podcast? I am generally pretty mild mannered fellow. Yeah. Uh-huh. I apologize. I can I can just shout the whole time. If that that, that would be good. But yeah. I mean, you don't have to like. It feels like. Are you doing it on purpose? No, this is just my. This is just how I talk. What you, aren't you a performer of some kind? <laughs> I feel, I feel immediately judged and insecure right now. <laughs> Completely insecure. Welcome to my show. <laughs> not, not uh, a good sign that their first question is, "Aren't you a performer of some sort?" That's not a great, not a great start for me. <laughs> I just want to beat up on you a little. It's not good that you told me you had Rob Reiner yesterday, and then your first question was, "Do you perform?" <laughs> Not you great. know, I know who you are vaguely. I would. I don't know. We I, we've met a couple times, but I'm. I've the only time we really met. I was doing that. I interviewed you. I was at South by Southwest with oh. FC, and it was a money gig. And it was like I was like, oh, this is not the best way to like meet all these people I respect. I, I'm in the middle of fucking press junkets that they are so like mad. Like three hours in, what was everyone it? who came in, really, oh. I no. got in a fight with one person, and it was who? Like, 
I don't uh, with Ken Marino. Uh huh. Oh, really? Yeah, he was just in a bad mood. And, yeah. But I was also like, I'm not an. He's kind of physically intimidating. He's a big guy, <laughs> and I, it's clear. Like everybody's like drinking in that South by Southwest. Yeah. He's probably like nine interviews in on a day, and he was just in a bad mood. But I also am like, I don't give a shit about interviewing people at South by Southwest, so I don't want to like deal with it. And then we got in like a weird fight, and they put out a video of it. And it's like, it's, I always felt bad. I always felt bad about it. It's just like two people in a bad mood butting heads when it's just supposed so to be funny. a simple promo video. Yeah, I, I did. He was on the final episode of my last season of my show, and he was the guest of this talk show thing <laughs> that I was doing. And I was like high on drugs Yeah, in the show mm-hmm. and just busting on him. And it yeah. got a little tense. He's good at tense. Maybe he's- It was real tension. <laughs> It was real tension. Well, that was one of those things. I've done those things before where somehow or another you've been cajoled to do something. Like I remember I went to Montreal Comedy Festival like in 1995 for Comedy Central and I was the guy with the mic. Yeah. So, hey, you having a good time? At the fe-? You know, like some, it, it some, somehow I twisted it in my brain at that time that, yeah, this is a good opportunity. This would be good. Yeah. But then you're not even a comic. You're just- No. And you're asking the comics about what their experience as a comic is like. And yeah. it's this weird- um, status ladder. Did you thing. feel that? Yeah, but yeah, you know, but the thing was, is like your, uh, you know, your whole oeuvre is a, a little uh, oddballish. Yeah. So so then so then like you know we're told like oh yeah Chris is doing this thing in a backyard with a with a, a shack or like yeah, there was, a trailer there was something involved there was a whole sort yeah. of conceit to it yeah so you're already working against that you're like really you know everyone's gonna work this hard to. Yeah. To do the silly Chris thing? Ouch. What? <laughs> the you, sil- that, the what silly you, Chris you, thing. What, no, it's but like, it's not the it's not the No, but you you're the one who was shitting on. No, it. I know. But oh. it's also my thing. It's also but that's what I was feeling in a big way was that many people were like, Oh, the silly Chris thing. Although I yours was one of the Have ones I had more show? fun with. I have watched my show. <laughs> it's weird. I don't know if you ever get this. Like with my show, it's like I'm simultaneously like fiercely proud of everything i've ever done with it and then also completely um i won't say ashamed but like constantly like i have no idea what what the world outside of the bubble of people who really love it right i have no idea what people think it of it i know there's a cult that like loves it and then i assume everyone else is just terribly confused i don't uh well we can address that but what are you saying you're about to say something good about me I, I was going to say the interview, I remember the two that I really enjoyed were yours and Eddie Pepitone's. Those were the two that I felt good about. Well, I know, how to, I know how to have a good time with the uh, professional entertainers, yeah. which, which you are. And I knew you were a guy and a funny guy. Well, thank I you. I mean, I didn't enter. But see, like I had just put, put you into this weird uh, marginal area of like, um, not not like, I don't buy into the whole nerd thing, but, you know, you were a couple generations behind mm-hmm. me doing, you know, uh, something uniquely your own that uh, that I, I had not really dealt with. Sure. Fair. Like, say, yeah. So, but I didn't think you were like nobody or something. That's good. Some, like Ken Marino had never heard my name and that was part of, that was part of it. So that's nice to hear. But I, I remember we were throwing knives, knives and yeah. I was just interviewing. And it was actually, I, I found it actually very pleasant and relaxing, that one. Yeah, because, you know, like, if you give me a task, I'm going to try. Yeah, it was great. And you were good. I remember, like, you got better at it in the right. course of the short interview. Yeah. So, you know, and I that that whole festival, that one in particular, it's not even a festival. It's just this strange corporate clusterfuck. Yeah. I watched one of your shows. I think it was probably a, 
a great representation of what it really kind of emotionally was. It was the one with that basketball guy you like a lot. Oh, John Starks. Yeah. Yeah, that was a recent one. I had fun with that one, yeah. Well, I just sort of like, I got the whole, you know, the setting of it and the the, the public access vibe of it, though I didn't, I didn't really, it wasn't on board for the public access show because this is a newer show, right? This is on Fusion, yeah. They yeah. picked up, we were on public access for four years yeah. and now it's we're in the middle of our second season on And Fusion. like, I see all the regular people and everything else, but, uh, you know, how <laughs> moved you were by uh, by your relationship to basketball and that guy in particular, oh yeah, was uh, was sort of touching. I wear my emotions on my sleeve on the show, yeah, in a big way. In life in general, I'm a pretty emo guy. But you like punk rock, and that's how you kind of express yourself. I do like punk rock, and I grew up that that was an early version of like being, I think, like finding ways to express myself and feeling like. Uh, you know, I think that's what punk rock is, is like outsiders go there to feel like they have a community, right? And Yeah, but I mean, when you were growing up, I mean, who were the bands really? The bands, like local bands in Jersey, the bands I really loved growing up, um, like the big the big band I always used to see, the, the Bouncing Souls are still around. They were a big Jersey band when yeah. I was a kid. And then this band Weston I was obsessed with. Yeah. They were the ones that we used to go see all the time. And then there were smaller bands. Smaller um, bands than those two? Oh yeah, oh yeah. They were like legends. They were like legends in in Jersey at the time. <laughs> uh-huh. Bouncing Souls are legitimately pretty big. Weston yeah. now the new the guy from Weston now is a band called Beach Slang, and they had a, an album that got like tons of press. Last I, I year. didn't mean to be condescending. I just don't know that world. But who are oh, the? We want to get into the small bands. I could start bringing up like Boxcar and Felix yeah. Frump and like <laughs> bands that people who knew them will be amazed. Yeah. The Lavalinas from Little Falls, New Jersey. So who are the old guys at these shows? Just you and Tom. Yeah, I don't. I I think Tom was even uh, rolling his eyes at some of the shows I was going to when I was fifteen or sixteen. But yeah, and who were the bigger bands that were you know that got you into punk? Um, like even the bigger bands are kind of small. Like I love Jay Church. That yeah. was a huge band for me. And then Jawbreaker. And I really there was a stretch where I really liked H two O, who were like a one of the they were like kind of a melodic hardcore band in New York. And I remember I saw them a couple times. And the guy I had this like experience where the dude saw me and I, I was like a depressed kid and I was standing in the back by myself and the lead singer came up to me and was like, Hey man, I saw you back here. Like you are, you doing all right. And I remember that meant so much to me. And that was like punk rock to me it was like, Oh, the dude from the big band from New York just like walked over and talked to me. Cause I looked sad. And I always like look back at that and I'm like, I try to be that for people now. Uh. <laughs> like I try to be accessible. Cause I think punk rock for me felt very accessible and felt like, okay, like this feels like the one place where I feel halfway safe and normal right well well, you also have to have that empath uh skill yeah you know like it's you know it's one thing to be gracious but it's another thing to sort of like scan a room and be like "Ooh, okay yeah okay looks like he's in a little trouble yeah (laughs) and And i i feel like now my work the people who are attracted to me are all uh, those people almost universally people who feel like they're in trouble or mentally suffering like those are the most vocal fans i have well i think that if you can confidently kind of uh hold your vulnerability publicly that means a lot to people who are sensitive and and are either struggling with uh, you know that sensitivity or their their feelings of of not being able to fit in or function. Yeah, yeah, you're an oddball savior. A, a little bit, and I'm I'm an happy underdog. about that. No, it's great. Happy it's about the that. best thing you can be, really. Yeah, to be a genuine one of those. Yeah, it feels good. It feels good. It feels like it's been both like there's a part of me that is aware that it was 
part of what I signed up for that's kept me kind of like underground. Whereas I think I could have like tried to go be a character actor yeah. coming out of UCB when I did and everything. But I'm very proud of it. I'm like very proud to have landed where I've landed. Well, it's a very interesting trajectory. So you're from what part of New Jersey? West Orange. Yeah. My grandfather owned a hardware store in Butler. Really? Or no, in Haskell. Butler's an odd town. That's an odd area. Well, that's the mountain people. Oh, big time mountain. Well, I worked at a magazine called Weird New Jersey. That's all about weird stuff in New Jersey. Oh, really? Yeah, for years. Oh, like set me best, straight. Best job I've ever had. My grandfather owned Jack's Appliances and Jack's Hardware right on the main street in Haskell. And the mythology, the family mythology was that he was the guy early on that was sort of, you know, schlepping washing machines and refrigerators up to the Jackson Whites. Oh, you know about them, the Ramapo, the Ramapo Mountain people. Yeah, isn't that close by? That's this is I'm obsessed with this story. Yeah, that's up in that area. Yeah, like they didn't have electricity for you a long time. You know, Jackson time. Whites is like they they look at that term as derogatory at this point. Yeah, I think I got a little flack for that. Well, let's. Yeah, it's an outdated term. They call themselves the Ramapo Mountain Indians, but that the 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 term Jackson Whites is like in local legend how they're known. But I'm a, I've been obsessed with them since I was 15 or 16 Yeah, like there, there was a couple of them that were sort of like around in my mother's childhood. Yeah, and they all there's like four or five last names that they all share. I know everything. If this could just become a conversation about the Ramapo Indians. Well, what, we could talk about this for two hours, I well, swear. I, I, well, I was sort of fascinated with it because like, like in that area, it was important to me because I was born in, in Jersey City. My father's from Jersey City. Mm-hmm. And my mother grew up in Pompton Lakes. And, you know, so my grandparents were there. So I, I spent a lot of time in Pompton Lakes yeah. and at my grandfather's store, you know, in Haskell, because I go over there and hang out for the day yeah. with the old men that hang out there. Uh-huh. And that, uh, and, and you know, I'd heard about that whole thing later in life. Yeah. And I, I sort of become fascinated with it, but I didn't have any information about them. Well, do you know the whole, they all have the same, there's like four or five last names, uh-huh. Van Dunk, De Groot. DeFries Milligan Man. Uh-huh. At most like if you meet people from that area with those names, they generally these people in the the they live up in the mountains, up in the Ramapo Mountains in yeah. in a few towns like Mawa, Ringwood. Ringwood is is the one that was close to where your folks are from. Yeah. I would imagine they were interacting with the Ringwood. And then Hilburn, New York. And they they uh they say that they have a Native American background. The state of New Jersey won't certify that, but a lot of people say it's this racist thing where it's because all the Atlantic City casinos they don't want them to have to compete. Right. If these guys get casino rights and well, my the mythology really, I heard was that lives. there was like there there were there were there were Native American people, uh huh, and there were runaway slaves, runaway slaves, and the mercenaries, German Dutch mercenaries. Yeah, the they're German mercenaries or Dutch. The in the Revolutionary War, right. it was the German mercenaries, the Hessians. Okay, and we think my family, my last name, because I'm Irish, three quarters Irish, and then the other quarter we don't know. And there's a family rumor that we might be descended from Hessians because they all tried to stay in America after the war and like changed their names. Your family's been in Jersey that long. My family, my my mom's family came to Jersey in my. I think my grandfather got here in 1928. My grandmother a few through years Ellis later. Island. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, from Ireland. And then my dad's family, his mom is Irish Cunningham. So I come from, it's Kelly, Byrne, Cunningham. So all super Irish. And then yeah. Gethard, that's the weird one. And they've been in New Jersey, like the Flemington, New Jersey area. You can find graves going back like to the 1800s, 1700s. But not, not but we don't 1600s. Know not no, Dutch. But nobody knows, nobody quite knows where it came from. Huh. It's like very mysterious. Nobody's ever been able to figure it out. And I don't know any Gethards who aren't related to me. Like you can account for everyone. 
all the Gethards are accounted for? Like, yeah. And it was funny because when Facebook came out, yeah, like I started finding there were like all these other Gethards from South Jersey. And like, you know, North Jersey and South Jersey, they're almost like two different states. Yeah. Like, it's a real divide. So I was like, who the fuck are all these guys? And it turned out there was a guy named Brad Gethard. And I found his Facebook profile and he was like almost the exact equivalent to where I was at in the comedy world, but in the world of BMX biking. And I looked him up and he was this like jacked dude who hung out at the shore all the time. There's like videos of him doing like backflips on bikes. And I'm like, who are these South Jersey Gethards that are all athletic and tan when like I'm up here and I'm this like pale, broken down, physically like piece of shit. Like what's, who are these guys? I've never spoken to any of these people, but my dad was like, oh yeah, they were like my grandfather's cousin's descendants. Like you can track them all. But wow. it was, it was weird. But he was, it seemingly was like in the, in the culture of the like alt comedy world, the exact status I had as this like <laughs> up and comer, he was exactly that in the South Jersey BMX world and, or Did even you, like the national. Why BMX haven't you had him on your show? I thought about it. I thought about getting him to come in and just like, like doing a whole episode about like the genetically superior Gethard that I discovered. And let him do some tricks on the bike. I, yeah. I wanted to like set up a half pipe and stuff, but I, I don't remember if I contacted him or not, but if he hears this, um, I think he's, he's more than welcome. Facebook. Yeah. Maybe I'll just, I don't know. I've always felt awkward. Like, what do you mean? It seems like it's right in your wheelhouse. But it's like this phantom branch of my own family. And I have no idea why we lost contact. But there's a story. My, that, that branch of my family, there are many secrets. Yeah, but, but, I, mean, I, don't, but that's I don't like generations be... ago. They just settled down there. You know what I yeah, mean? I mean, but maybe they, I don't know. I'm a you very anxiety-driven. You think it's like the Hatfield and the McCoys or something? There's like renegade Gethards who are like, we're the alpha Gethards. We're going to the beach. I am a, I am a crazy <laughs> enough person to paint that in my mind, <laughs> for sure. I am definitely. Wait, so let's get back to the Ramapo yeah. Indians. Yeah. So what else do you know? So are there, they like, cause you know, they, the idea was that they were hill people bordering on and sort they, of hill, hillbillies. And there's all, did you hear, there's stories that like, you know, these are stories that I think are probably rooted again in like judgment or racism, but there's all stories that there's like a lot of albinos in their culture and a lot of people who have some deformities because of inbreeding and stuff. Well, that goes um, with any, you know, sort of hill oriented community. Group. Yeah. Like no one, you know, it's like, that's just... It's racist, but it's it's less specific than that. It's just yeah. like, you know, hill people in general of any type. Fear. Without ethnicity, it's sort of like, you know, do they ever come down? Well, it's because they... you say your grandfather went up there and that's like a big deal in that part of Jersey. Like the story was always like, do not go up there. Don't fuck with them. They don't like it. And I think there is still, because I've researched them a lot, and I always felt a little bad, like, working at Weird New Jersey, we write about them a lot, and there's certainly, like, we really researched it. And you didn't go up there? I never went up there. I never wanted to bother anybody. Yeah. You know, like, I, I think these guys, like, you know, a lot of teenage kids will, like, drive their cars up there and, and see what's going on, and, you know, you can just feel like maybe they're getting gawked at. When I was younger, I wanted to go up there, but it's so hard to find. I would go drive around with my friends in that area, but I mean, it it is really hard. You have to drive to these mountaintops, dirt roads and stuff, but lots of stories of them, like people going up there. And like, like my old boss at Weird New Jersey, he had a story. One of the first things I read about them before I ever worked at that magazine, I loved it, obsessed about it. And he wrote a story about how him and his buddy were driving up there in a van and they went down this dirt road, not looking for them. They didn't know yeah. anything about this area. They were just like, let's go drive around, see what we can find. And they drove down this dirt road in the middle of the woods on top of a mountain where there were these shacks and all these people came out and lined the streets and just stared at them. And then it was a dead end. So they had to turn around and drive back and they thought they were going to get killed. And they just had to get out of there because these really? people just came out and just stared at them with this vibe of like, you do not belong here. What are you doing here? 
But I, you'll like this. When I went to Rutgers, they have in their library, they have this room called the New Jersey Room, yeah. which is just all this archived stuff about New Jersey. And I went in there and looked up anything I could find about them. And I found this, somebody in the 50s wrote a dissertation. She was an NYU student, if I remember right. NYU or Columbia, school in New York. Yeah. And she wrote a dissertation about them in the 50s. And this was like, things have really modernized and they still, there's all these stories that a lot of these homes don't have electricity and stuff like that. And this was in the 50s before, like at, at a certain point, I think the government made an uh, made a, a, an effort to go up there and say like, hey, your kids have to go to schools. Right. And you have to integrate a little bit with us so we can provide services. Right. Yeah. In the 50s, that hadn't started yet. And some of the stories in this dissertation were terrifying. Really? Terrifying. Yeah. <clears throat> I remember one where like this guy, she wrote, she was just writing all these stories she'd heard about. She's basically archiving. I remember one where she wrote about how there was like a farmer in the area had stuff like, I think chickens, if I remember right, got stolen and the sheriff, uh, it was reported to the sheriff and he went up the mountain and it was just him and a deputy and they were looking for this guy and they, they went up, they found this guy chopping wood outside of this like little house in the woods and yeah. they went up to the guy and they were like, hey, um, we're looking for this one specific guy and they said his name. Uh, like, if you can tell us how to find him, we really need to talk to him and he just stared them down and they were like, look, we're not, we're not ca- trying to cause any trouble. Yeah but we really need to talk to this guy. Like, do you know who he is? And the guy just walked away in silence, went into the house, came back with a gun, pointed it at the cops, in uniform cops, and was like, that's me. So what do you want to, what are we talking about? <laughs> and like, I remember reading that one and being like, that's chilling. That's like exactly what you want. If you're a nerd enough to go to the New Jersey room of the library at Rutgers to look for stories, that's the story you're trying to find. There that was. exact story. There was. Yeah. So weird New Jersey, like, because oh, now I'm fascinated. That because... was the best gig I ever had. Yeah? I've, I got that job when I was 19. Yeah. And I still think, like, if I got that job when I was 27, I never would have left. Yeah. But I was, like, a driven, I was, like, an angry young guy. Yeah. And comedy came calling, and I had to chase that. But I think if I found that, if I got that job when I was older, I never would have left. It's the best job I've, I'll ever have. It's the best. My, my memories of, like, other things that, like, stand out as mythic to me, like, my my grandmother, my father's parents later in life, when they retired, they lived um, in this like seemingly singular high-rise building at the end of the Asbury Park boardwalk oh, before wow. Asbury Park turned around. Uh-huh. And my, my, my aunt, my aunt, my father's sister lives in Oakhurst, you know, out by the beach there. Yeah. So when we go out there, we go to like Deal Beach. Yeah. To, to swim and shit. And then there was always this sort of like, you know, Al Capone or the mafia used to own these mansions down there. Yeah. Is that true? I, I've always heard that. Yeah. Oh. And then there's also- Now the, I'm looking for confirmation. I don't You're know You're the that's, weird New Jersey guy. I know. But this was also, I, I mean, I quit that job I in know, but how many fucking stories could there be? I mean, tons, tons. But now I think it's all like Persian Jews or something. I don't know what's happening. And there's there. Ocean Grove down there too. Do you know about Ocean no. Grove? Which is this like town, right? I think it's called Ocean Grove. I'm almost certain I have that right. It's a town right next to Asbury Park that's like um, just a super, super devoted Christian community. Oh, yeah. No drinking. Right. To- and yeah, they, yeah, I've heard of this. They have these like big tent like revivals, revivals yeah. on the beach. Yeah. But you don't think about, that's what I love about New Jersey. It's like you, like you could be up in the Ramapo Mountains looking for the mountain people, yeah. getting a gun pointed at you. Yeah. 
And 40 minutes later, you could be at a tent revival on the beach. Yeah. Both of which feel like you're living in like a different reality in totally different ways. And they're right next to each other. I always was very fascinated with it because, you know, it is part of my genetics. Yeah. Do you know about Clinton Road? Do you ever remember that from when you No, I remember Willowbrook Mall. I remember we were all very excited when Paramus Park was built. Uh huh. That Paramus Mall. The scariest thing that ever happened to me with Weird New Jersey was right next to Willowbrook Mall. It was insane. Really? Yeah, there's this town, Lincoln Park, which is Willowbrook Mall's in Wayne. Yeah. Right on the border is the I, I lived Lincoln in Wayne Park. for a couple of years. You when did? I was a kid. Yeah. So, right, there's like the Pequannock River, the Passaic River. They all meet right in Wayne. Yeah. Lincoln Park's on the other side. And we were getting letters at Weird New Jersey about this place called Buttonwoods. And, uh, it's, it, we heard like it's this swamp area and there's these cars that someone has placed like vertically, like buried vertical, this ring of cars. And we were like, oh, we'll go get a picture of that. Yeah. Call it Carhenge. It'll be the best, you know, like put that in the magazine. He had a name for it, Carhenge. <laughs> and my parents had just moved to Fairfield, which is yeah. right near there as well. And I was like, I know where they're talking about. Like I've never, I don't know it too well, but I know exactly. I'd driven around and there was like these swamps up, ag- up along the river. And there were like people living back there in these tiny little houses, like broken down houses. And I was like, I know it has to be that same area. So me and my boss went driving up there. Yeah. I was driving. I was in, I was driving. I had a 1986 Chevy Celebrity, like this old man car. And we go up, we're driving around there. And one of the hurricanes had just hit. I forget which one this was. This was in like early 2000s. So yeah. I think maybe Floyd, I forget. But a lot of these houses were abandoned. They had like all the wood and the red X's on them. And, um, we're driving down this swamp, like all these roads in the swamp, seeing all these abandoned little houses, like one story, little tiny houses, like real swamp people. Like you yeah. got the mountain people on the mountains. These, this was like river people. Yeah. And one of the houses was still lived in. And there's yeah. all this shit on the front lawn, car engines, all this stuff, like create like big piles of wood. We drove past that one, didn't think anything of it. And then we were down near the river and all of a sudden... It's like a dead end street. You know, it's a dirt road that goes to the river. It just ends at the river, swamp on both sides. And all of a sudden this pickup truck just rolls and blocks the road. Big pickup truck. We were like, what the fuck is this? You know? So I turn my car around and I'm just going to drive around past this guy. And then he straightens the truck out. So he's facing us. We go to, I go to go around him and the window just rolls down, driver's side window. And this hand, this like massive hand just comes out and gives me like the Dikembe Mutombo, like, no. So I was like, oh my God, and I'm sitting with my boss. And I didn't have the job that long. It had been like less than a year. Yeah. So I was like about to shit my pants, but I was like, I don't want to look scared in front of like the dude from Weird New Jersey. Like he hired me. He's never going to let me do anything. <laughs> don't like, want to be judged by yeah. the guy from Weird New Jersey. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Got to keep it together. There's two dudes in the truck. Yeah. The driver's side is massive. I can't stress enough. This dude was huge. And I'll never forget like. He had, all his hair was white, but there was this lump on his head and all the hair growing out of that was black. And I was like, what (laughs) is this? And meanwhile, there's this smaller guy, skinny guy in the passenger seat and he had a hat on and he immediately like pulled it down and slumped down so we couldn't see him. And it was like this, these people have bad intentions in a big way. Yeah. So I pull up, try to get around the truck, but I mean, it's swamp on both sides. Yeah. So I can't get around it. The truck is too big. So I roll my window down like three or four inches and I'm like, hey man, what's up? And the guy, I'm not kidding, he 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 just starts yelling and he's going like, 
you got to come back and I cannot he's like marble mouth it was yeah. like crazy he's yeah. like you gotta let us and I was like you gotta calm down man I can't make out what you're saying like you gotta chill out and he eventually slows down enough that he's like you coming back here I heard about a kid in the shed redhead kid glasses you've been stealing you stealing from the house you wanna come steal from these fucking houses I'm gonna fuck you up and I was like hey man I'm not stealing anything we were just driving around like we're yelling at each other the skinny guy's saying nothing. My boss is like silent. I later found out he was like as scared. Like the idea that I didn't want to be scared in front of him. Like he was, he, meanwhile, he's like hired me and he's like, oh, I'm going to get this 19 year old kid killed in the yeah. swamp. Right. Great. Yeah. So this guy's yelling at me. He's like, you're stealing shit. I know. I've heard you about you stealing shit. I'm like, that's some other guy, man. So eventually it starts to slow down. And at one point out of nowhere, he's like, mentions the Jerry Springer show for some reason in this like diatribe of this guy just screaming at me he's like this and that and the Jerry Springer show blah, blah and I was like you, you like the Jerry Springer show he's like yeah I'm like I like that show too man he's like you do and I'm like yeah and I'll never forget he's like I love it man they get in the fights with Steve Steve and I'm like yeah Steve gets in there he breaks up Steve's the man bro like we both and then he's like I like they bring the KKK on I love it I'm like yeah of course yeah of course who doesn't love the fucking KKK I'm like I'm just saying anything to try to get this guy to like calm down <laughs> like you and he start the tension starts to break yeah and then the skinny guy who's still like he's high up yeah. he's leaning down he leans over to the big guy and he whispers something in his ear and the big guy he just goes <laughs> yeah and as soon as i heard that i was like what's going on man and the dude looks at me dead in the eye he goes i'm gonna have sex with you and i was like no nah, man no you're not like no way and he goes i'm gonna give you twenty dollars and then I'm going to have sex with you, which is like, so like the fact that money got involved, it was really <laughs> weird. And at that point I was just And that like, like, you were such a low ball. I know. Insulting. Insulting. But at that point I was like, fuck this. And I just drove into the swamp. I was like, cause immediately in my head, I'm like, oh, those, like he rapes people. He throws their bodies in the river. Right. And then he picks up their cars and just, he's huge. He just puts their, that's what the right. cars are. It's like yeah. his trophies. Yeah. So I just drove, I was like, I don't know how deep this swamp is. I don't know what's going to happen, but I just drove into it. Just like enough to get around the guy. My yeah. wheels started spinning out, got around him, managed to get back on the road. Thank God. And then they started chasing us through all these dirt roads. We got out to the main road. And when we got to like the border of this neighborhood, um, Two Bridges Road is like the main road there. We, we got to Two Bridges Road which if anybody listening to this is hearing it, the idea that Two Bridges Road is the main road, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. They stopped. It was like it was like a force field. Like they didn't leave their little neighborhood. So we got back to the office. My boss was like, write all of that right now. Just write down what happened. We published it and like people loved it. It was one of the probably the one of the most popular articles I ever wrote for them. Yeah. We started getting all these letters. People like one lady was like, I used to live down there and it was like like kind of cracked out, but I loved it. I was near the water. Right. She was like, but I had to move because those two guys would harass me and they killed my dog. Those was, two guys. Turned out they were brothers. You can't forget the guy with the growth on his head. Dude, we got a letter from a cop who was like, I had to arrest the big guy once. He was like, the, we used to get calls about those brothers all the time. Had to arrest him, put handcuffs on him. He's like, he was so strong. The cop was like, I'm not bullshitting you. He broke the handcuffs. Like he was that big and strong. Started getting letters. Another kid wrote us, was like, he chased me once too. I was driving around back there. They chased me, but they didn't stop. And I had to go the wrong way on the highway, like Route 80, like the the highway. Like it goes from the George Washington Bridge to California. Like, yeah. He's like, I had to ride the wrong way down the highway. That's the only thing that got them to stop. But my favorite part was like, 
about a year went by, two years, stopped hearing so much about it. You yeah. know? And then we got a letter out of the blue from another cop. And he's like, I just want you to know, like, this guy, we called him the Beast of Buttonwoods yeah. in the neighborhood. Great. You know, we were, yeah, always yeah, good. Yeah. we were always good about giving it flashy names. And this cop was like, I just want you to know, like, I knew him. His name was Schultze. That's what we called him. And, like, we had to deal with him a lot. He was a troubled guy, but he had a big heart. And I just want to let you know, like, he passed away. He had a heart attack. So I wanted you to have closure of the story. But he's like, I also wanted to let you know, like, he was legitimately a really big fan of Weird New Jersey. And he used to love reading about himself. He got such a kick out of it. So, the like, guy with the thing on his head? Yeah, the guy who like threatened to rape me was like reading my article about it <laughs> when it came out a few months later and like laughing, apparently was like laughing his ass off that he scared me that bad. But yeah, that was, that was, that was the scariest. And I got held at gunpoint. That was the other thing once. We were in the, we used to go to like abandoned buildings and we went all the way up Route 23, like Sussex County. There was this like home for abandoned boys yeah. we were in the basement heard footsteps above us, which is like the nightmare. When you're in an abandoned building and you just hear the door open and footsteps, <laughs> this guy came down with a shotgun, this hunter, and he was like, what are you doing here? And he pointed it right at me. And my boss that time was very smartly like, hey, what's the deal? And he's like, you're trespassing. My boss was like, do you own this property? He's like, no. And he's like, well, first of all, you're trespassing too. And secondly, like, <laughs> however much trouble we're going to get in for trespassing, <laughs> you're going to get in a lot more for pointing a fucking gun at us. Yeah. So maybe we just all call it a day and go our separate ways. <laughs> those, were, those were the two <laughs> scariest things from my weird New Jersey days by far. It was never, because it was all ghost stories and stuff. Yeah. And people always ask me, like, what's the scariest thing? And it's like, oh, it was never the ghosts. It yeah. was always the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always yeah, yeah. the people. Well, yeah, I mean, like I knew that was another thing when we drive into New York and we drive past Secaucus before they oh, yeah. built the Meadowlands and it stunk and my grandmother would just, all she, all I knew about that was like, this was all pig farms once. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, it was all pig farms. And then do you know there's a part of the Meadowlands that is so contaminated that it's like permanently on fire. <laughs> it's just like a flaming wasteland. I once, when I started at UCB, I was still at Rutgers yeah. as a kid. My dad went to Rutgers, by the way. Oh, nice. Yeah. I hated it. It yeah. almost broke me mentally. It was yeah. like really bad for me. Why? Just because it was college? Well, I, I think I was like always, always a, a depressed kid and still deal with, I'm on medication and everything. And I think a lot of everything I've read is like, when that's the age when, if you're going to break, you break is when you're like college 19. age, yeah, yeah. 19, 20. And I went there and it was just a state school and like 40,000 students. Like I should have picked, I would have thrived. Like now that I'm old enough that I've done college gigs as a yeah. stand up, like I go to, I, I did a show at like Wesleyan yeah, or like, right. And you're like, why didn't I come? I just did one at, um, uh, up, up, up out in Ohio, Worcester. And mm -hmm. I was like these like little artsy havens full of artsy kids. Yeah. Like, why didn't I go to school like this? I Worcester been College king. is in Ohio? Yeah, the College of Worcester. Oh, yeah, yeah, Out yeah. in Ohio. And like, why didn't I find some small school? I would have been the king of some little artsy school. And instead I'm at this state school. Yeah. Like. Being the whipping boy. Yeah, just being like the, the nerdy guy at yeah. Rutgers. Yeah. Like every blue collar Joe. Well, but yeah, I once I I would take the train back and forth to the city to go to UCB, and I remember taking taking a train back once, which then they, those trains they go right through the Meadowlands and drive the, uh, being on a train where both sides of it the Meadowlands were just on fire, and it was like, oh, this is this is like I literally live in hell. Like this was this is how New Jersey ends. Yeah, this is how it all ends. Like to get back to Rutgers, where I'm more depressed than I've ever been in my life, I literally have to take a train through flames, fire. through flames. It's like so representative 
representative of how I felt about my life at the time. Well, how many siblings you got? I have one older brother, two and a half years older. And was, is he like you or is he? He's like me, but even nerdier and weirder. Like he, he's also funnier than me. Um, and he, he does some comedy. He lives in Philly. Such a funny guy. I think I'm a little more disciplined. He, we'd both agree. I think I'm a little more like organized and disciplined and that's why I went for it. But he is like really creative, but he's also like nerdier than I am. And yeah. like, I don't know how much you know about West Orange, New Jersey, but like when I grew up, it was like a pretty, it's like very divided. There's up the hill, down the hill. Yeah. Up the hill is a good part of town. We were down the hill, which has always been like a little rougher. And my parents both grew up on the same street as my dad. And right around the corner from my aunt and my other aunt, my grandparents, very family. That's why Jersey worked. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like very- What did uh, your dad do? My dad worked in um, pharmaceuticals, uh-huh. which is one of the big industries in New Jersey. And yeah. he like started, um, he's like started, he was just like a hustler. He's like a really, really smart guy. And he really started just being like a dude who um, like worked at the, he worked at a place called Graver Forever. And that was like, he's just working hard. And then he switched to Pfizer and he started pretty, you know, just Sales? Work, worked his way. No, no, no. More like, uh, like organizing, um, th- eventually his job by the time he ended was, he was like working at different pharmaceutical plants to make sure that they were all up to code with the like FDA and the EPA. Oh, right. But he started off. It's funny. Cause like his big thing, if I remember right, was they made Visine and he like, he was like in charge of like the visine production and was like, Hey, if we switch this and this, we can like save millions of dollars. So he became like really uh, like on the fast track there. And then, but the funniest part about him working at Pfizer was they would give all their employees stock options. And then when Pfizer put out Viagra, all of a sudden, like my family had some money for the first time because everybody just cashed in. But my, my last name spells the words get hard. Yeah. And my dad's name is Ken. His name spells Ken get hard. (laughs) And we made all this money off Viagra, which was like, <laughs> but it was cool because like forklift operators who'd worked at these factories for 40 years just cashed in. Oh, they did right like away? Viagra millionaire. Oh, everybody quit. <laughs> everybody quit. My dad kept working, but it was just this super cool thing to see. Like, Did he, oh. did he sell out a little though, at least? did he? It was like, it's funny because it was like, all of a sudden we had some money and he was really, I mean, never flashy, but it was like there would be just certain aspects of life where it was like, oh, like it was weird. Cause it wasn't like, I felt like, oh, all of a sudden we have money. It was more that I realized, oh, like I didn't realize things were bad. Right. <laughs> until they weren't. Right. And my parents did such a good job of sheltering us from that. Right. Well, you got what, like, uh, like better yogurt and like, like you know, uh, oh yeah, go ahead and buy those shoes or what? Like I, the big one for me was my parents kept me out of debt, which was nice. So I went to state school. My brother went to a private school uh-huh. and they were like, we'll give you as much money as we gave your brother. Like that's the fair deal. And like, I had some scholarships cause I was a smart kid, but it was like, oh, like my brother had student loans and I didn't, I never yeah. had student loans because I went to a state school and they were just going to match. And I don't know how much that was, but I was like, Oh, they were both, they were able to be very generous with my brother and I for college Right before Viagra. I don't think that would have been the case. It would have been loans no matter what things like that, you know, where it was just like the infrastructure of it's life so was funny. You can taken care of. Break your life up by with before and after Viagra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and like they moved. That's when they moved from West Orange to Fairfield. Uh-huh. And they had a, all of a sudden we had a house that had a pool in the backyard. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like not in a flashy way, but it was just yeah. like. Just now the it's next like, step up. Like the up, now it, yeah. I can feel we used to be lower middle class and now we're upper middle class uh-huh. and good for my dad. Like he worked hard. My dad worked 
my dad was like such a workaholic. So worked so hard. He deserves it. When did you find the the depression? I mean, like, because like it sounds like it was a real thing. Oh yeah, up until the past few years, it's been like really, like uh, definitely the hardest. And you weren't medicated for years? No, I hit it because the Jersey thing. Everybody wants to be tough, you know. Really, you think it's a Jersey thing, or I think it was a part of it. And I also, I mean, like, I'm Irish Catholic. Right. You don't like, you know, everybody just drinks like everything. You know. So you were boozing. I was in college. I quit drinking before I, I left college because it got so bad. I, I, I started feeling really... Oh, uh, you I just must felt, have been sad drunk. Oh, it was so bad. It was so bad. I, just, I got sad just picturing it. Oh, it was bad. Someone just... <laughs> I, I, like, I've had a couple of college friends send me pictures of me when I'm drunk. Like, yeah. like you know, like friends will find old pictures and send them to you. Uh-huh. And like somewhere I'm just like cross-eyed drunk and it makes me so sad. Yeah. So uh, th- there's a few pictures of me on the Y2K. I was in college during the Y2K New yeah. Year's. Yeah. And that like there's pictures of me like ju- standing in a sink just pouring a bottle of champagne all <laughs> over myself, just like cross-eyed. And it's so sad. In this like filthy fucking house that my friends lived in at Rutgers. Yeah. Just so sad. I was like... A, like probably like 13 or 14 was when I was like, something's wrong. Like something's wrong with me. And I didn't see a shrink for the first time until I was 22. So, really? So yeah. you just, you know, sucked it up and dealt with the darkness? Yeah. What was it, bleak? Was it like suicidal? Was it, it like was, nothing was good? It hit a point where it was suicidal. Um, when That's when I finally, when I was 22, that's when I crashed a car. Um, and that was like... That was the worst it ever got. And then about six months after that, I finally, I call, I had this ex-girlfriend who you I- You weren't drunk, you just- No, I just basically like, I was driving for Weird New Jersey. I was like, our factory was, our warehouse rather was in Patterson, where we stored all our magazines. Patterson, we used to go get fish there. Oh, I thought you were going to say drugs. <laughs> no, my grandmother, there was a place right outside of Patterson, I think called P-Tax. It was a Jewish kind of yeah. smoked fish. And yeah. she, they, all the Jews had their places. Yeah. And there, one of those was in Patterson. And I think my my aunt lived in Patterson briefly with her husband. Yeah, another tough town. Your whole family, your family lived in the tough towns, man. Jersey City, Patterson, Elizabeth. But they weren't. But in the sixties, those are tough areas. But not like I mean, they they were tough. Yeah, all right. Your family, you, your family had some uh, some grit. <laughs> oh, good. Your family had some fight. <laughs> but yeah, I was driving. I, I had to go pick up some magazines, and I was driving in Patterson, and I was I was driving back. I was actually in Clifton. And uh, I was behind this truck and he put his blinker on and I went to go around him and he turned the blinker off and I was just like, fuck it. And just like crashed. And it was bad. It was bad. Uh, It was like really scary. And then I wound up on the front lawn of this house and the guy was telling me to get out of the car, but I was in total shock. And uh, he was like, I'm going to fuck you up. And then these housewives were all like, I heard, I'll never forget hearing like all these housewives were like, is he dead? What's going on? Yeah. And they all sounded like Carmela Soprano. Like, yeah, yeah. They, all these people just, and I was in total shock. And the guy was like, get the fuck out of the car. And I was like, I can't, man. The doors caved in. Like, and it was making him mad that I was so calm, but I don't think he realized I was in shock. Yeah. And he was like in this rage and he was coming around the car. And then the dude whose house it was came out and got in between him and the car and was like, you need to chill out. He's just a kid, man. And then... Um, the guy just, he got in his truck, he left. And then I'll never forget the worst part is I, the guy helped me out of the car and I was like, he's like, you all right? And I was like, thanks man, you saved me. And he just looked right at me and he was like, it's all right, man. I wasn't going to let some nigger beat up a white kid. And I was just like, this day could not be worse. (laughs) This day could not 
everything about my life is fucked. Like everything. I was just saved by this. I owe this Monster. guy. I owe this racist. <laughs> this like stereotype of a North Jersey racist my life. Great. And that was the worst. That was like the worst it got for me. That, but was, that was your bottom. Big time rock bottom. And then I, I still, I, I wouldn't go see a shrink. I wouldn't do it. I felt like it was like weak. I felt like I wasn't supposed to do it. And then about six months after that, I just had like, I would have these like attacks, like breakdowns. And I would always call, I had this ex-girlfriend who I would call unfairly because she like, she had basically seen it. Yeah. We dated for three years. So she'd come over to my house sometimes and I'd just be a wreck where I couldn't leave the fucking house. And so I'd call her because that was convenient for me because it was like, oh, then no one else has to know. And right. She, she was like, I called her at like two in the morning crying and it was like, I'm all fucked up. And she was like, hey, you're, you got to go home and wake up your mom right now. Cause I'm call I'm gonna call her in the morning and tell her how fucked up you are. So but you're not drinking. You're just gone. fucked up. Your brain's just just yeah. Just my brain was not cooperating. Yeah, it was not good. Uh huh. And then yeah, got on medication for the first time in 2002. And when did you start doing stand up or the show? I mean, you spent all this time to, you know going to punk shows and yeah. being a depressed kid and being uh, sad in college and yeah. You know, having run-ins with swamp people. Yeah, big time. It's a weird life. I had a weird life. It was a weird childhood. When I, it's like funny because I like I'm older now, and I think about it sometimes, and I'm like, oh, I'm like melodramatic. But then I tell these stories, and I'm like, oh yeah, no, like it was kind of a strange way to live. <laughs> but I started doing UCB right after. It was I think it was the same week as my twentieth birthday. So before you got on medicine, just after strange, before I was weird sober, New Jersey. Yeah, during weird New Jersey, I, yeah. I started weird new jersey when i was 19 yeah if maybe a month later i started at ucb and those were the two things that got me through those right. were the two things that saved engaging. my engaging yeah and like making like weird new jersey was amazing because it was like first of all it was like this bizarre thing that yeah fit my personality but right. also it's just two guys made it and it was this massive success and i was around these guys where it was like oh they're doing their own thing and making it work yeah and to me it was really only bands that i thought could do that right and then all of a sudden it was like oh you can make a you can make a magazine specifically about ghosts in new jersey and that can be your job <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and then ucb was like creatively yeah starting there in 2000 it was like oh this place feels like i'm allowed to be who i've always wanted to be yeah I, and you I, had like-minded people there yeah and also that was before ucb became like as successful as it was so as everybody i think at, there at that time it was just like oh they're doing it because they have nothing else to do or because this is worth doing for them for some in the same way for me where it was like this just feels like a thing i need to be doing didn't feel like nobody had commercial agents even at that point yeah. It was like, I remember when, when uh, Andy Daly got Mad TV, they like shut down the theater and threw a party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, someone got a job. But yeah, but you getting into UCB when it was it had gotten its own place, I mean, that was really the beginning of that, you know, yeah. of the culture of UCB. Right, big time. I was yeah. there pretty early. Yeah. And it still felt like I missed the golden age. Everybody, I feel, I always feel like no matter when you start at UCB, you feel like 18 months ago was when it, you always feel like it was 18 months prior that it was at its best. <laughs> I don't, I don't. No matter a, when you start. I guess that's true. Everybody romanticizes it. Yeah, but but, it, but that looks at that that means you look at it as a singular time where it actually was like this you know, r relatively inconsistent week to week thing. Oh yeah, that's the thing. People romanticize it, but it's also like half the shows at UCP back then. Yeah, were terrible or just insane. <laughs> yeah, right. And there'd be six people, right, just watching complete. Yeah, yeah. Nonsense. Drunken madness. And I loved it. Yeah. To be 20 years old and yeah. depressed and like going to Rutgers, going to state school because I was like too scared to say to my dad, 
I want to be an actor. I mm-hmm. want to be an artist. Yeah. And then to find UCB where it was like, oh, I can show up and like just watch a show at midnight where it's like Rob Riggle yeah. pretending like Rob Riggle. I remember once seeing a show where it was like Rob Riggle had a baby doll yeah. and he put fake cocaine on it and snorted cocaine off a baby doll and then pretended to fuck it. And to be like 20 years old and feel like you didn't have a place and then just like show up there and be like, oh my God, like these are like grownups. These are like grownups behaving in a way that I've always dreamed of. You're allowed to do this? I'm allowed to be a part of this? Yeah. And that's what I loved about it the most was it was like, it didn't matter that I was 20 years old. When people realized that I was hardworking and I was funny, it was like all bets are off, just hang out. Yeah. But then of course, that also meant that I was 19, 20 years old where there was the city that paid no attention to drinking laws. And I yeah. was just like getting shit faced at McManus. I don't yeah. know if you ever hung out at McManus. Uh-huh. That was like the UCB bar back in the day. Yeah. Just like so many of the best and worst nights of my life spent right. in that bar. Face down, yeah. Face down on the McManus men's room floor. Which, if you know that bar, you don't ever want to be face down. Oh, on the floor. so you were that guy embarrassing myself, yeah. yeah. So you're doing UCB now. What? And you get sober, but you don't do the thing. You just quit. Yeah, yeah. I never did the program. Yeah, just cold turkey. I tried to quit a couple times. Yeah, and then I think the la- the last time I drank was if you know Owen Burke, um, who works at uh, Funny or Die. Uh huh. And he, I think the last time I drank, he came to Rutgers. I, I took this, I used to just take joke classes. That was, they had like an agriculture school. And I found out that you didn't have to be an agriculture major. And I took this class where I basically just raised a goat. I just hung out with a goat. And then at the end of the semester, they had like a 4-H show. And like, you just like competed with the other goats. And I went and took that class. It was like two credits or something. Just that whole semester was the bet. I just was, my parents were like, just don't drop out. Just get a degree. Yeah. So I took that class. I took modern dance. I I did an independent study about comic books. Just anything I could to just not take real classes. Those sound really good. It was fun. And Owen Owen thought the goat thing was funny. So he came and he filmed me with the goat a bunch. And then he, the night before the goat show, we we drank 40s. And I think if I remember right, the last time I drank was I drank a 40 with Owen Burke. And then I woke up the next morning and (laughs) entered a competitive goat show. And what happened to the goat? I don't know. I've walked away. I've you never just walked away from the goat. Never seen it since. I told myself I'd go back to the barn and touch base with the goat, and I never <laughs> did. The goat's got to be dead by now. Probably. Yeah. So when did the uh, the public access show come into um, you know uh, reality? Well, basically, I'd been doing UCB for years, and um, mostly like the improv stuff, and then I started to do. I like had a very slow transition to stand up where I was doing like more storytelling stuff, which is kind of like stand up but safe. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like stand up but where right. since it's a story. The expectations are different. Yes. It's, yeah. it's basically a lot of storytelling shows. I love a lot of storytelling shows. And then a lot of them are basically, if you don't have enough punchlines, you yeah. just call it storytelling. Sure. And that was a safe way to transition. And then started doing some more like kind of performance arty things and. Those were getting me press. The I did like a show where I took everybody on a bus and took them, like all my stories would be in Jersey. And then I started developing this little cult for the first time, all these NYU kids. And they were like, we want to see where your stories take place in Jersey. So we rented a bus and I did the storytelling show where I tell the stories in the locations where they happened. So we went to Rutgers, we went to West Orange. And that was like the first thing where people started to hear my name of like, who's this fucking kid that rented yeah, a bus? Right. That was the first time where it wasn't just like, at UCB I was right. known where the comedy world in general was like well, right 
So I had that reputation for doing this weirder stuff and this very personal stuff. And then I got cast as the lead in a sitcom out of nowhere. It was yeah. this like miracle situation where uh, John Heater, who played Napoleon Dynamite, dropped out last minute. And uh, they were just like casting to replace this guy at this sitcom that was going to shoot in New York. And they only auditioned like 10 people. Uh-huh. And they called back me and uh, Matt Bronger. And I got it. And yeah. It was like, and then a week later, we were so shooting. So different. It was, it was, I Matt. know, it was like it's so weird, but it, it's kind of indicative of how much of a scramble the situation right. was. Right. And it was like, they were writing the episodes while we shot them. We, we filmed two episodes a week. Yeah. 10 episodes. What was it called? It's called Big Lake, yeah. Comedy Central. And it was one of these situations where it was like, they're going to film 10 and then if they pick it up, they're going to pick up 90 to right. go right to syndication. Uh-huh. My agents told me if it gets picked up, you're going to make over $2 million yeah. the day it gets picked up. And I was like, well, this is the dream. This is like, you know, for years. I'd been at UCB at that point for so many years. And it was always kind of like, you're next. You're going to be the next guy. Yeah. And then I never was. Mm -hmm. And it was like my friends, like Bobby Moynihan, one of my best friends, Zach Woods, one of my best friends. And they're like getting Zach. the gigs. Zach's the best. You're going to be the next guy. And then my students, I'm teaching classes. Then my students start getting gigs. And it's like, uh, all right. <laughs> and then, but then I get this sitcom out of nowhere. And that's kind of like... That's like the fantasy. That's like the romantic fantasy. And you'd like, worked for it. Yeah. I'd yeah. put in many years. At that yeah. point, it had been 10 years at UCB. Yeah. And it was like this dream, but then you get there and it wound up not doing well. It bombed. It yeah. bombed hard. And that happens. And I've talked about this a bunch to the point where I think it's like um, become like part of the legend. Yeah. Of me, but I want to be clear. It's like, I loved it. I loved the opportunity. If I knew it was going to bomb, I'd still take the opportunity. I'm like so grateful I got to do it. I learned so much. But after it bombed, it was really hard because it was like a lot of the press surrounding the show was like, who's this guy that came out of nowhere? Yeah. The, and, and then it became, it's his fault. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then a lot of it was like, this guy can't carry a show and that's why it's failing. And I learned so much in that experience of like, well, I'm sure that might be true for some people, but in reality, there's a whole infrastructure like it's, it doesn't make so much sense to film two episodes in a week when they're also being written that week. No, it's hard. I, it's I mean, that's hard. a schedule on my show, you know. You, it's you know, nuts. Yeah. So I was like feeling kind of burned and that really like, I'd been doing the Chris Gethard show at UCB the whole time. The talk show. Yeah. That started like November, 2009 and I got the sitcom like a few months into 2010 and then we were just doing it once a month at UCB and I loved it and yeah. I was like, this is me. And then the sitcom bombed and I kind of had this choice where it was like, well, now I'm kind of in the pipeline, kind of in the club where I've been on a sitcom where even if it doesn't go well, that I can go audition for more and do that. But I just kind of felt like, like it was very weird because it was like when it, when I got it, it didn't wind up solving my problems. Like, yeah. I was still very depressed and right. very angry. Right. And when it bombed, I didn't, it didn't hurt as much as I thought it was going to. Right. And that just kind of showed me, like, I don't need to do it. I'm chasing status. I'm chasing ego. And it's not, I don't watch sitcoms. I don't like sitcoms. So yeah. why am I chasing them so hard? What I really love is, like, renting buses and doing this Gethard Show thing that's just all these weird ideas. Basically, I'd started doing the Gethard Show. The, the, I'd been doing this storytelling show, and I, I, I was getting burnt out on it, but it was still popular. And the AD at UCB at the time, I was like, I'd like to do something different and carry the momentum. I've always wanted to host a talk show. And he like changed my whole career. He was like, I'll let you do a talk show. But he's like, everybody who does a stage talk show at a comedy club in New York, it's just they wear a suit 
and they follow the format. Right. And that's not you. So he's like, I'll give you the talk show slot, but just make it the place where you do all your weirdo shit. Yeah. And that was the start of it. And then after the sitcom bombed, I was like, I don't love, I just, I just took it on the chin for this thing that I don't love, a sitcom job. I don't love sitcoms. I don't love them. Yeah. I love the other stuff I'm doing, but I'll never make money doing it. Right. But I think the punk rock side of me kicked in. And also there's definitely a fearful side of me that was like, that was so scary. Um, and right then I met this guy. I had taught this kid in a class years prior and I ran into him at a bar, at the same bar, McManus. I wasn't drinking anymore, but I would hang out there because all my friends were there. And he was like, you know, I work at the public access station in New York. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. And he's like, your show would be kind of a perfect public access show. And I grew up, I loved a lot of like local TV, small scale TV. Yeah. I was just like, man, this might, this is like kind of the only opportunity I'll have to do my show as a TV show. Yeah. And then he was telling me about it. And he's like, we have a three camera studio. You can do it live. You can take calls. He's like, we stream the whole thing on the internet. And that was the one where the red flag went up where I was like, so you don't even need to just live in New York. He's like, no, people can watch. No one. He's like, no one knows this. You can watch our shows anywhere. You just watch on the internet. We stream them off. And I was like, well, how much does it cost? And he's like, it's free, man. And I was like, you're telling me I could sign up and just for free, just have a TV studio with all those capabilities. And he's like, yeah. So I went and I filled out the paperwork and it was like a very insane four years of my life, but public access, it saved my life. It's where I met my wife. She like came on the, I had had a band at the UCB version of the show, but their singer got a job in Canada. So he left and yeah. we switched to public access. They were all friends with her through the punk rock scene. And I had been a fan of hers, her yeah. albums. Who was she? She was the lead singer of this band called the Unlovables. Uh -huh. who was like pretty big in the local New York punk scene. And I was like, she's like, I thought, I always thought, I was like, that's the coolest girl in the world is Hallie Unlovable. That's, yeah. you know, punk rock. They, right. Everybody has a nickname yeah. and she's yeah, yeah. Hallie Unlovable. I'm like, yeah. she writes these great songs, like super catchy punk songs that I love. She's this like beautiful, tall, redheaded woman. And um, she had just, she was also, she was a punk rocker, but then she also had this like kind of secret life the punk kids didn't know about where she was on Broadway. She was in Rent. Yeah. And she was in, um, she wound up being in these shows De La Guarda and Fuerza Bruta. Yeah. She had these like crazy aerialist shows where she'd hang from a fucking harness and swing around from the ceiling and stuff. And she broke her back doing that show. So. Before you met her? Before I met her. Yeah. So her whole career just in a day ended. She ruptured a disc and herniated a disc. Because oh. she's doing this crazy show. Yeah. This like Daredevil show yeah. basically. And she was like on the shelf and I think feeling really stressed out. And then the boys in our band were like, hey, do you want to come sing as part of this public access show? And I think she was like, she always says that she was like, oh my God, this like, I have to write new songs every week. And it's this thing that will like fuel creativity in this time where it's been taken away from me. So she joined up and I got my wife out of it. So I always joke because it's like, <laughs> like if it was like, I had a bomb sitcom and she had a broken back. And that's what led to us meeting on a public access TV show. It's like, yeah, it's like a weird, a very weird love story. And you did it weekly. We did it weekly every Wednesday night for four years and, and just and lost you, money. Yeah. I just put money into it, but I loved it. And then kids started finding it and it was so cool. Like it, the initial month or two, it was really bad. The UCB, uh, we had this like cult following at UCB. They abandoned us. Nobody came along. Nobody liked the new version of it. All the calls we got were just prank calls. Yeah. Just guys watching on public access in New York who'd call up and just be like, fuck you, pussy, and then hang up the phone. Yeah. 
And then two things started happening. Like one, we'd have bands on the show and it was like this full circle moment in my life where the punk rock bands, we didn't have an audience and we felt horrible about how the show was going. And then bands would come in and they were like, this is fucking cool. And I was like, oh, people I think are cool are telling me this thing is cool. I'm going to keep it going. Yeah. And then I'll never forget, like the first time we got a call from Jersey and I was like, so you're watching on the internet. You're not just watching on New York Public yeah. Access. And the first time we got a call from like Kansas and I was like, okay, you're not just like Northeast where I'm like a little bit known. Like, and then our first call from Canada and we started getting calls from Sweden and Brazil and like Honolulu and like all these places where it was like, oh my God, like I can actually track this thing spreading. And yeah. I'll never forget, like, it was so small. I miss like, I miss the days when it was small. And I always, I'm, I like constantly am fighting to try to keep it feeling small, like a yeah. community. Cause like, I remember the first time someone posted about the show on the internet, it was this girl, Caroline Anderson, who uh, put up a post on a special thing. And she was just like, Hey, there's this show happening in New York and it's cool. It's like a public access show, but it's, it's weird, but it's funny. And then the next week I just took a white t-shirt and I wrote Caroline E. Anderson is the shit as like a shout out to her. Cause I was like, someone wrote about it on the internet and right. then she saw that and thought it was cool. And it was just like, I just got to know the people watching the show one by one as they found it. And I still try to do that, even though it's gotten bigger, I still just try to make it feel like a community. Cause it like, I had been through this thing that it was like, I thought I was finally successful. I thought I was finally going to bust out and then I didn't. And I wound up doing a public access TV show, which is like beautiful, but kind of humiliating I'm a year out. I'm less than a year out from being a star of a sitcom and I'm hosting a public access show. That's definitely, I got to imagine the only time that's ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then people started finding it and it built this cult and, uh, they kept me going. The cult kept me going. They, it's like, people always say like, they thank me for the show and they're like, it's this special thing to them. And they don't realize it's like very hard for me to explain to people like, Oh, you guys have no idea that you saved my life. Like people tell me the show is a thing they find when they need it. And a lot of people say like, oh, I was like, I lost my job and I was home all day. And that's when I found your show. Like a lot of stories like that. And, you know, and then you built this cast of characters and then it, and it, and it became a community. Yeah. And and people got to know them and your interaction with the, um, uh, with the, uh, you know, with the audience and with the people on the show. So it all became very organic and you had complete freedom. Yeah. Total freedom. But you lost a lot of money just because... Uh, <laughs> I added it up once. When it started to gain momentum, New York Magazine wrote this article, which was huge for us. And they called me the Carson of Cable Access. Yeah. And it was like, oh, that's huge. That's like such a help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guy asked me, he was like, so like, you know, we're buying props. We're buying tapes to tape the show. Those are not cheap. We're buying all this stuff. And he asked me, I think it'd been like a couple years in and he was like, can you like add up all the money you've spent? Yeah. And I went through and added it up and it was like in two years I had spent $10,000 on this show. That's nothing. But it had no hope of making money. It had no hope of making any money. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I don't, it's not huge in the entertainment sense, but when you are a guy who is largely just doing like teaching improv classes and trying to get commercial work, I don't. I didn't have ten thousand dollars. Right. I didn't have ten thousand dollars to put towards anything. But you didn't think about getting sponsors or anything like that. Not allowed. Public access. Oh. We weren't. That was the thing. Our show started catching all this momentum, and it had this huge cult fan base, and it was getting all these articles written about it. And some people did reach out, and they were like, "We'd love to sponsor the show." And it's like, 
I'm not allowed. It's one of the only things you can be, you can curse. Yeah. You can have nudity. Can't have a sponsor. We couldn't even say when we'd have bands on, we couldn't even say, go to iTunes and buy their album. Yeah. Public access is one of the only rules. They're very, very pure. They have a lot of integrity about that. I mean, New York public access, there's still so many insane shows. Yeah. And I could tell you about a lot of them. Yeah. But there's also a lot of people where you meet it and it's like, you meet these people and it's like, oh, these people are working hard because they have something they want to say. Yeah. And this is actually providing them a forum to say it where they're not, yeah. they're not people who would ever be able to get this message out. And I actually grew to really immensely respect it. And yeah. I think it's like an undervalued thing and the cable companies are trying to kill it. Yeah. And I really think if you live in an area that has a public access station, you should fight to keep it alive. Cause it's no joke. It is no joke. You can be, there's a dude, there was a dude I was told about named King Cuba who had a show on New York public access and he used to do it live. And during one of his taping, he was a high ranking member of the Latin Kings, no joke, an admitted member of the Latin Kings in New York. That's a big deal. That's a real thing in New York, the Latin Kings. And he did his show there, and during one of his tapings- This is a gang? Yeah, yeah. it's a gang. That's yeah. one of like, it's the Crips, the Bloods, the Latin Kings. Those yeah. are the three everybody yeah. knows, you know? Yeah. And during one of his tapings, the fire alarm went off, and he apparently flipped out. I, this is all, if, if King Cuba hears this, please, please take it easy on me. I'm just telling you what I heard. Don't yeah. shoot the messenger. But he apparently was like, you guys are trying to shut me down. Someone pulled that fire alarm because they didn't want me to- say the shit I want to say and they were like that's not what happened like there was a fire <laughs> man and he threatened to kill he was like I'll fucking kill you he like threatened to kill someone and they were like well, here's what's beautiful about public access is they didn't say they didn't kick him out they said you can't tape your show in our facility anymore people are scared you threaten violence but you live in Manhattan you can have a show so now he pre-tapes a show and every week he shows up and he has to call from outside and a security guard comes out and takes a tape from him and they still fucking air it. And I started in 2011. He'd been doing it for nine years. He's been doing this since 2002 for 14 years. They let this guy who threatened to kill them yeah. have a show. And to me, that's like a funny story. But what other platform in the world would be like, hey... You can threaten to kill us and we'll still put your TV show on the air because this is a community well, may forum. Maybe you're underestimating the the power of the threat. Yeah, but I mean, they could have <laughs> called the cops. Right, right. They could have right. called the cops. Whatever. There's a, The show that followed ours for years was called Sub-Zero TV. Yeah. It's literally just dancing naked women. And like, I mean, like spreading their ass cheeks and just pointing their assholes into the camera. Yeah. And then every once in a while, this dude would just lean into frame with a bunch of money and smile and shake the money and then lean out of the frame. And that was the whole show. And they just put it on for years. Just nudity and a guy grinning. And that's the whole show. Gotta love it, right? Yeah. They actually have a policy at New York at, uh, at the Manhattan Neighborhood Network. They don't watch the shows. Once they give them a thumbs up. They don't watch the shows because they say then they would have temptation to censor it. Right. They'd have the temptation. Like if it offended the sensibilities of people who work there, they might want to pull it. And that censorship is so against their mandate that they actually, as a policy, do not watch the shows. Interesting. So if they get complaints from the community, they'll look into it. So Otherwise, it, they don't even watch. Were you sad to leave? A well, no. I, there were many points where I thought about hanging it up and where it was a little embarrassing to be the public access guy. Well, now, what has changed since you're on Fusion? I, can you still do it live? We, we have kind of the best of both worlds. We stream it live. We stream our tapings live on the internet so we can take calls. Right. And now we can use Skype because we have the money to like build the right. technology into it. And then what we do, 
So we take the tapings, we edit them, we add in pre-taped stuff, we right. add in stuff that's like high, more highly produced. Then we put that out on the network and then that out on YouTube. What's the podcast? I'm doing this podcast um, called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. I do it with Earwolf. Yeah. And I basically just take a phone call. Last year when we were doing the half hour version of the, the Gethard Show on Fusion, I, I like really missed being able to just have long phone calls. Like our show on public access, nobody cared. I could right. just talk. If I wanted to talk to somebody for 10 full minutes, I could. Yeah. And Earwolf, for years, I'd been like friends with Jeff um, Ulrich, and yeah. we'd been trying to figure something out. And then, so I just take a phone call anonymously. They don't say their name, and I can't hang up for an hour. It can go up to an hour. They can hang up if they want. I can't. And I thought it would just be like a nice, laid back, like slice of life conversation with just some regular person. Yeah. And um, it's been going really well. And then I was like, oh, I'll just ease into this and see if this podcasting thing is for me. And then um, they featured it on This American Life and it's like exploded in my face and it's become this scary thing where I'm like, oh, people. Yeah, yeah. Like like each episode's getting like way more than it should and I'm scared of that and I was hoping I'd just have some time to figure it out. But now I'm just in the shit. But I love it. It's really fun. It's very satisfying. There was this thing in New York called The Apology Line years ago. Oh, that sounds awesome. And it was, and there was a, uh, the guy who did it, I think passed away, but there was a magazine in conjunction with it with, transcripts of these I've anonymous of apologies yes i used to have them uh, uh, like three or four of those issues and some of the tapes so it's cool. pretty heavy you know like it was heavy yeah this gets heavy too when you tell people they can be anonymous they'll tell you anything yeah it's yeah i gotta check it out and it was a pleasure thank you it was my pleasure i, I loved it and there's nothing to be insecure time. about you oh, there's not, so many things to be insecure no, about. No, there really in this isn't. Life. You're doing well, and you know you're you're showing up for what you do, and it's a it's a beautiful thing, and your story's great, and you've persevered, Chris. I keep I do have a chip on my shoulder. That's the Jersey way. <laughs> um, but yeah. thank you. I'm a huge fan, and my wife is um, obsessive about the show, so I'm, she she must be so excited listening to this. In oh, the future. I hope so. It's going to yeah. be good. Awesome. Well, and, I'm glad. And and, uh, and if you're listening, what's her name? Hallie Bullet. Howie Bullet. It's a cool uh, name. Your right? husband's a very genuinely um, interesting and nice guy, and I'm sure you know that. And uh, we're good. Him and I are good. I feel. I like that. That's. <laughs> we're good. I'll take that. That feels like a good place to land. All right. Thanks, man. How wonderful! Not a word I use a lot. How wonderful was that conversation with uh, Mr. Chris Gethard? You can check out his stuff. Go see his stuff. Did I mention his stuff? Uh, the podcast on Earwolf called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. Also the finale of his show on Fusion uh, this Wednesday. My show, Marin on IFC, this Wednesday at 9 o'clock. Featuring the uh, the lovely um, Sally Struthers. <laughs> it's pretty dark stuff coming up. We're out of rehab and in the world, folks. Okay. Okay, I will play a little guitar for you. I was on the cover of Guitar Aficionado magazine this month, which I didn't feel I deserved, but I, they wanted to talk to me, and uh, I guess I'm a, I you know I'm I'm a amateur guitar player who plays, who likes to play, so I why not? Am I an aficionado? I don't know. I, I like to play the guitar. This is a, I just I'm gonna just play a Strat with a phaser on it and uh, a little bit of echo. Oh, my God.
Boomer lives. <laughs>